This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. A special shout out to our newest Patreon Team Southpaw members, Aaron Rowe, the God of the West Wind, and to James Ree, the God of the East Wind. Collectively, you have become the wind beneath our wings. To quote Phil Baroni, you're a legend, Coleman. And by Coleman, he means Aaron Rowe and James Ree. Find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Give us some money. So I was first planning to start off the podcast with some jokes, some non-PC hot takes, and put down female fighters for being female fighters, and analyze the fights on how people looked and what they were wearing, and other physical features I find to be worth noting. Then I remembered we're a lefty MMA podcast, and we don't do that. And so without the filibuster, there's no stalling before we get to the actual good stuff. So then let's jump right into it. UFC Janjacek versus Watterson. Janjacek has already been to the top of the mountain. But for Watterson, this is her ticket to her first UFC title fight. And standing in her path is former champions Joanna Janjacek or Jessica Andrade. And on paper, these two are tougher matchups than the current champion Wiley Zhang. Without an easy path to the title and having already lost to Doug Rose, Watterson drew Janjacek. Watterson has a lot of good attributes going for her. Even though she's small, she's quite strong for her frame. She's fast, athletic, and because of her stature, she can get in on the legs of her opponents. But she also has some stylistic habits that don't match up well against Janjacek. If you come from boxing or even kickboxing, the shorter fighter with less reach has to play the infighter and get in on their opponent to cause damage. That sometimes means walking through fire, so a lot of time is spent then on defense, head movement, and learning to defend while simultaneously attacking. Watterson, however, is a short outfighter. A lot of this has been informed by starting in point karate first. And I can't say this is even one of her strengths. She shines during scrambles or when she has a great speed advantage, or in ground engagements. So the karate side-on distance fighting stance is just a feature of her game, not necessarily a strength of her game. It's just a tendency. Also, Watterson historically is not known as a puncher, but rather a kicker. Even though in training she works her hands a lot, in the fight she sticks with what she's comfortable doing, which is kicking from range. So as far as game plans go, Janjacek willingly played into Watterson's game. She kicked with Watterson at range, and having more power and reach, she won the kicking exchanges. And since Watterson mainly relies on kicks, Janjacek also lit Watterson up with punches as Watterson was kicking. A habit that still remained even in this fight was for Watterson to continue kicking while getting punched in the face, even though the punches will off-balance her kicks and also hurt her ability to defend. But in karate and taekwondo, when you're getting hit, you start kicking back. 
that habit has remained with her from her teenage years to now. Janjacek was also working the body and legs. Since Watterson relies so much on speed and movement, invest in stopping the movement. So when Watterson engaged her in clinch and pushed Janjacek to the fence, Janjacek was happy to turn Watterson around every time they hit the cage and work her with knees to the body, punches to the body, and elbows to the face. Janjacek would do this clever thing where she would create a wedge and push Watterson away with her knee so Watterson can't get hip to hip in an attempt to throw or trip. Then Janjacek would remove her wedge and catch Watterson with a knee with her free leg as Watterson was coming in. Also, as Watterson was coming in for the clinch, Janjacek caught her with punches and kicks. The bladed karate stance also didn't serve Watterson well, as that opened her up to open side body kicks, leg kicks to the lead leg, and head kicks. And since Watterson routinely switches stances and didn't have a noticeable side with better defense, she got evenly worked on the left side of her face, leg, and body, as well as her right side. Part of the problem with Watterson's takedown attempts was a lack of chaining together the wrestling, sticking with the takedown before bailing on it and moving to clinch, or breaking Yan Jacek down before jumping onto her back, or breaking her down after getting the back. Because Yan Jacek kept standing up, peeling her off, pushing her flat up against the fence, then teeing off on her with punches. Yan Jacek did that several times, where she used a cage to pry Watterson off. Then with Watterson stuck up against the fence and with her mobility limited, with the fence up against her and her body and legs chewed up, she became a punching bag. Even though taking the back was her best shot at winning the fight, Watterson was always worse off for it and landed no strikes from the back position. In fact, it was Jan Jacek who did significant damage from Watterson's back. Throughout Watterson's career, she's had a habit of looking for a headlock throw. In clinch, she tried this several times against Jan Jacek and Jan Jacek would calmly take her head out and either drag Watterson to the ground or punch and knee her from behind. Taking Watterson to the ground and looking for submissions was just Jan Jacek styling on her. Two judges gave Jan Jacek every round, and that's the score that most accurately portrays the fight. Now somewhere in this fight where pushing her to the fence and kicking her at range was not working at all, you and your team have to adjust even if it means adjusting in the middle of the fight. And the future of coaching and a fight IQ will be about that. Not the game plan you come in with, but also your ability to have a new plan mid-fight, or switch to plan B or C or D or so forth. You could come in with backup plans already predetermined. But Watterson is an opportunistic fighter rather than a fighter who programs a fight and sets up traps. Unless your opponent messes up, this is the only way she's ever fought. At the end of the fight, Watterson even said she's stubborn like that and kept fighting the same. Watterson is a fighter who fights in turns, not simultaneously. She can't attack and defend at the same time. So she's done well with other turn-based fighters, but Rose Namajunas, Tisha Torres, Joanna Janjacek drowned her in volume. Watterson gets flustered if you don't give her a turn, and she goes back to what she knows kick combinations while she's already getting punched, which only makes the damage worse. By the end, she wasn't even a zombie coming forward. She was a punching bag. She absorbed 226 strikes over five rounds. She dished out 
71 strikes in return, most of which were kicks from distance, landing with the tips of her feet. I don't know what Watterson does next, but at 33, she's a developed fighter. She's been fighting as a pro for 12 years. She's not washed up physically by any means, but sometimes fighters start to skid, not because they're physically worse or any slower or shopworn, but because everyone else has seen enough of you and your habits to make you predictable. But since MMA is still a low-paying sport without a union, probably only fighters in the top five can afford to think about these things or pay someone to think about these things for them. Up next, we have Mackenzie Dern versus Amanda Hebus. Hebus pulled off a surprising upset and beat Dern by unanimous decision. Heading into this fight, the story surrounding Dern was her return from maternity leave. How would she look after having a child? Will her weight be an issue? Out of her eight professional fights, three of them had to take place at catch weight since she wasn't able to hit the straw weight limit. Dern's fourth fight was actually at flyweight to accommodate her fluctuation gaps on the scale, but she promised her promoters that her weight was back in control and returned to straw weight for her fifth fight. Even though Dern looked solid on paper, many didn't agree with the massive hype surrounding her. Yes, she's a highly decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and her long-time history spent training with their father, Megaton Diaz, is noteworthy. However, Dern's debut in the UFC put a halt to a lot of the high praises, since she was barely able to squeak by Ashley Yoder, a fighter who was coming off a two-fight losing streak and had a record of 5-3 and three at the time. Dern then came in heavy in her second UFC fight, coming in an astounding 7 pounds over the straw weight limit. Her only saving grace was that her opponent, Amanda Cooper, is a notoriously hot and cold fighter, alternating wins and losses, and was not expecting Dern's punches to be as heavy. After over a year away from fighting, Dern made her return against the unknown Amanda Hebus. Hebus had been flying under the radar for most of her career. In fact, as of this recording, she doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Her fight against Dern was her second UFC fight, and it's very possible that the matchmakers decided early on that in order to build up Dern as a serious contender, why not give her the new girl in just her sophomore outing? This also meant that Hebus would have to sharpen up her takedown defense and counter-striking. And since she knows where Dern wants to take the fight, it does make game planning a bit easier. Luckily for Hebus, this is an MMA fight and not a grappling contest. Since Hebus does have a 3-inch reach advantage, why not utilize it to its full effect? The fight itself was pretty brutal to watch, and it was a clinic on how you can utilize effective fainting, footwork, head movement, and solid 1-2s to stifle a grappler's main game plan. From the get-go, Hebus wanted to make sure that the striking was done on her terms and her jabs pumped out constantly, whether they were feints or the real deal. A straight right hand staggered Dern early and was definitely a sign of things to come. When Dern did come in with her overhand rights, Hebus would lean slightly back to avoid the shot entirely and come back with jabs and straights of her own. Every time Dern would miss her right straight, Hebus was there to counter with her own. Hebus also made sure to constantly circle to Dern's left, forcing her to pivot to her side and never give the time necessary to set up combinations. In fact, Dern seemed content training single shots for long periods of the fight, 
only trying for longer punch combinations when the two were in close range. Unfortunately for Dern, Hebus was definitely the quicker of the two and landed much faster and got out of the way of any return fire. When Hebus was taken down, she was quick to scramble up to her feet to continue exchanges up on top. Not to be outdone, Hebus also threw Dern with beautifully timed hip tosses, showing that she also isn't afraid to mix things up if necessary. This doesn't mean that there were only punches being thrown. Some Knight's kicks were also utilized in this match, with the majority of them being thrown by Hebus. The longer the fight went, the more obvious it was that the speed of Hebus was too much. Dern may be the stronger puncher of the two, but it doesn't mean much if he can't land. Francis Ngannou is a heavier puncher than Stipe Miocic, but it didn't do him any favors when Miocic disrupted his rhythm with the well-timed jab and punted his lead leg with kicks. Power is great when it's combined with a secondary threat, and in the case for Dern, her secondary threats were takedowns that weren't landing. When Dern did attempt takedowns, it was all done through single legs, which were easily stuffed by Hebus. It's important to mix in your attempts or do what Daniel Cormier does and attempt your takedowns off the clinch. If you really want nothing but the takedown, Habib Nurmagomedov's strategy of bulldozing you to the fence and working from there isn't a bad idea either. In the third round, Hebus started using stutter steps into Dern's left side, a favorite of Alexander Volkanovsky. It was clear during the entire fight that Dern's MMA game plan shows promise, but it might have been too much too soon. It happens all the time. A grappler experiences some success with their stand-up, so they decide to keep more fights on the feet. There are countless examples ranging from all promotions, meaning that this isn't a recent thing. In Pride, we saw Takenori Gomi go from being an excellent wrestler-boxer, turning into someone who does nothing but swing hooks. Fedor Emelianenko also fell in love with his striking and stopped attempting takedowns and his vicious ground and pound. In the UFC, Damian Maya had a period where he opted to trade with guys like Nate Marquardt and Chris Weidman. For women's MMA, look no further than Ronda Rousey, a fighter known for her judo and arm bars, opting to go punch for punch with Holly Holm and Amanda Nunez. This doesn't mean that Dern is finished. She can definitely bounce back by winning a few more fights. She's still dangerous on the ground and has power, but perhaps a move to flyweight is in order. This will give her time to focus on building skills and working on her strengths during fight camps rather than cutting weight. Even casual fans know success stories of fighters moving up in weight and finding championship gold by not having to diet down. Female flyweight is already short on contenders, why not make them move up and get a fresh start? As for Hebus, she definitely shocked a lot of people and can build off this win. Another fighter right at the cusp of top 15 might be great for her if you're trying to build her slowly, or someone at the lower end of the rankings, like Courtney Casey. If the UFC really wants to build stars and not burn them out, they should do a better job of managing their shelf life. I want to address the Mike Davis versus Thomas Gifford fight. I don't want to get into details of the match itself, but the cornering was absolutely atrocious. Gifford's cornerman, Mark Montoya, asked if he wanted out, and of course he said no. Despite given some ultimatums by his team to take down Davis or have the fight stop, 
Montoya did no such thing. Up to that point, Gifford had absorbed 77 strikes to the head and 38 to the body. Granted, a lot of fighters have taken more damage and won their fights, but they were at least competitive or had their moments in return. Gifford had none of those. Bisping is no stranger to fighting through adversity, but he was absolutely shredding Gifford's corner as well as the referee for letting him get back out there for the third round. Davis dropped Gifford multiple times with leg kicks in the third round, and Gifford was in no way being able to fight back intelligently. No one wants to get booed, the referee included, but that's why they exist, to protect the fighters. When it was evident that Gifford couldn't win and was not able to take down Davis, Montoya should have thrown in the towel, no matter what the crowd would do. Maybe it's because the fight bonus incentive keeps the athletes from quitting, since they think that they're just one shot away from winning and that sweet $50,000. It's a dangerous mindset and it leads to real long-term damage for the fighters. If the corner isn't going to throw in the towel over fear of getting fired from the fighter or booed by the crowd, then the referee needs to do the dirty work and stop the fight. People complain about early stoppages, but it's there to prevent the worst case scenario, death. If we keep waiting for too long, we're going to see the first fatality in the UFC in the not too distant future. Speaking of which, this is becoming a pattern with Mark Montoya and Factory X. Something similar happened to Eric Anders against Khalil Roundtree. He was getting so outclassed and dominated that it should have also been stopped. Which makes me wonder about the misaligned incentives of the performance and win bonus structure getting married to this alpha male toxic masculinity. Now let's talk about Cub Swanson versus Chrome Gracie. I've heard a lot of old men who train BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, say, you don't need school. Everything you need to learn, you can learn from Jiu-Jitsu. Well, a generation of BJJ people were raised like that, and now they believe the earth is flat, fish is a vegetable, and that juicing can solve everything. Don't even ask about climate change or vaccines. And Chrome Gracie is one of these kids raised by BJJ, actually by Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And he's not even a kid anymore. And so a lot of people had picked Gracie to win this fight. And I think that comes from this magical thinking that still exists even in MMA, when MMA is supposed to be the evidence-based combat sport. People still believe in this weird Gracie magic. A Gracie can always win with some weirdness no one expects. A Gracie will do something we won't understand. Then he'll win because of this weirdness and we'll all collectively scratch our heads wondering what the hell happened. But Cub Swanson is too much of a veteran to believe in magic. It's just kicks, punches, chokes, arm bars. Everything else is a variation. A lot of the making of this fight started decades ago with his father, Hickson, who believed he had figured out the key to fighting. One of his concepts from the 90s was that you use the front kick or side kick to close the distance, clinch, then take your opponent down with judo or by jumping guard. In a lot of ways, Gracies are like the martial arts version of the end of history. They figured it all out during the Reagan-Clinton era. Now they're done. Neoliberalism has won. But even Francis Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History and The Last Man, later on said he was wrong. We didn't figure it all out, and we need to keep progressing. 
But the Gracies, who were innovators from the 60s to 90s, were done with their innovations. And Crone Gracie very much believed in this idea that the history of martial arts was over with their family. The Gracies had the magic. Go to their seminars. You'll find people who still believe in this Gracie magic. But remember, Crone Gracie also thinks the earth is flat and sushi is vegan. And so what Masakatsu Funaki started with Hicks and Gracie in 2000 Cub Swanson finished in 2019. Crone Gracie stopped the four-fight losing streak of Swanson. So it wasn't like Crone Gracie was exposed by the best in the division. And that's what makes this even more revealing. And that's why Crone Gracie being the favorite in this fight was so strange. But in general, it was a bad night for one-dimensional jiu-jitsu fighters. As both Mackenzie Dern and Crone Gracie got outstruck in their fights against BJJ black belts, who happened to do full MMA. But Dern, to her credit, showed a bit more modern MMA, even going for double leg takedowns. Amanda Hibas, however, showed what you could do with just a good jab. The jab and cutting off the ring are still two things that are yet to be maximized in MMA. MMA was really set back 20 years because, for the longest time, Basarun told everyone that jabs were pointless in MMA. And since he is so universally revered, everyone actually listened. And he's still so beloved that no one blames him for the bare-knuckle organization that he's in charge of, where no fighters got paid. But that's a different episode altogether. Now with Crone Gracie, he stuck with his father's style. No wrestling shots, takedowns only from clinch. But being unable to clinch most of the fight meant he just ate a lot of punches. Like Watterson, lifting the leg to kick or shield while getting punched didn't do him any service. It just made him a punching bag on one leg who couldn't hit back. Now, he came out as a southpaw fighter, but it really didn't matter as he lunged forward with punches from either side. Rather than shifting stances with his punches, he would punch then step forward, similar to how someone throws a ball. So without the ground beneath him, the punches didn't have much sting, which is why Swanson, after getting tired from hitting Gracie so much, was willing to eat some of those punches because they were off-balance arm punches. You need the ground to create ground-reactive force. And since Gracie came in a straight line and followed Swanson around wherever he went, Swanson used a tactic that Eddie Alvarez often employs, or Holly Holm uses when she's at her best, which is to circle one way, have your opponent follow you, then go the other way, and strike on the exit. The worst were the body shots. Swanson worked Gracie low, then high, then high, then low with punches and kicks. All three judges gave every round to Swanson. Swanson just had Gracie's number in every way. He didn't fear Gracie even on the ground. He could see everything Gracie was doing because he's not an enigma. He fights like Hoist and Hoyler and Hickson and Hodger and so on. There is no mystery. This is one of those fights that will change Chrome Gracie's life. I don't mean that as he's a young man and he'll learn a lot from this. I'm too old to be that naive about MMA. I mean that as in, Gracie took so much damage in this fight. Some amount of that damage will be permanent. Gracie is already 31 and has an established name and brand already. He's going to be thinking a lot after this fight. Hickson Gracie only had one tough MMA opponent in his life, and it was pro wrestler Masakatsu Funaki. And even though Gracie won, Funaki broke Gracie's face and did a lot of damage. Hickson never fought again. Yes, 
During the fight, Hickson was ready to fight to the death. After the fight, however, he thought better of it. Chrome Gracie began fighting in 2014, and since that time has only fought six times. If there is a magical Gracie weirdness, it's not in how they fight, it's in their behavior, their beliefs, and how they often go into seclusion. The Gracies are a good example of how the anti-establishment, when they get into power, become the new establishment, who wants nothing more to change. You see this happening now with a lot of Generation X, tattooed misfits to tattooed conservatives. You'll also see this in the Gracies' politics, and that tradition goes way back. For more on the Gracies, I highly recommend the documentary Fighting in the Age of Loneliness by SB Nation. And since the Gracies did figure it all out, when they started the UFC, they claimed the whole family had never lost in a fight, which wasn't true. They claimed Hicks and Gracie was 400-0 and had never lost. When pushed on their claim of 400 prize fights, they later elaborated and said they were also including street fights and grappling matches. Then later, videos surfaced of Hickson losing in some non-BJJ grappling matches. But since the family had figured out fighting, it wasn't that they were wrong in their claims. It was the results that were wrong. Now with Chrome Gracie, he, like his father, is claiming he did not lose that fight. Their style is not the problem. It's the result that's the problem. And that's the problem with conservatism. Their methods are never wrong. It is the world that is wrong. You don't adapt to the world. The world must adapt to you. Now, that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever player you use so people can find us in their searches. A home has arrived for lefty nerds who like MMA, and we want to make sure everyone can hear our signal. With that said, so long and goodbye. Goodbye.